Good morning, everyone, and welcome here. Let's stand together and sing to the Lord our praises. Oh! 
Thank you for your singing. That's great. Don't know where you got it, Cam, but that's good. Uh, good to see everybody here this morning. We are uh, definitely in times where our minds sometimes aren't on the worship service. So what I'd like to do this morning is kind of bring us here. Um, call to worship. Let's read together. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know what is happening all around us these days. Help us to be aware of that, pray for that, be concerned about that, bring that to you. And also, Lord, as we fellowship here this morning, help us to do that and uh, clear our minds of some of that to some degree so that we can focus on your message in song and in word with the pastor, what you've laid on the pastor's heart as well. So be with us this morning now and bless the service. In your name we pray. Amen. Scripture reading. Scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 7. And it's going to be Acts chapter 7. And we're going to be reading verses 51 to the end of the chapter. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so you do. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they crowd out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep.
for that reading that passage for us and thanks music team for opening us with with that good music this morning appreciate that let's uh again just uh bow our heads and ask god to guide our thoughts as we look into his word this morning lord god this is your word to us um, we just pray that as we look into it now that you would uh just give us a heart that is open to what you are saying to us clear our thoughts of anything that may hinder so we would understand clearly what it is and uh, Lord that you would do the speaking this morning and in a real way Lord it would be you uh, not me it would be you who speaks your word and so Lord we are just looking to you with openness asking that you would teach us that you would feed us from your word this morning in Jesus name we pray Amen. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Those are the words of Tertullian. Tertullian, one of the early leaders of the Christian church. Uh, the next generation after the apostles had passed on, he was kind of in the late 100s AD. And looking back at the history of the Church of Jesus Christ from our vantage point, and looking back over history, um, we can see the truth of that statement. It seems many times that when persecutors of Christianity put Christians to death, it actually sowed the seed of the advancement of Christianity. And it all started here in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts where we, where we are looking today. It's the story of the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr. Last week when we finished chapter 6 we were kind of left hanging. Uh, Stephen had been brought before the Jewish high council which is called the Sanhedrin. He's charged with blasphemy against Moses and against God and speaking against the temple and against the law and for saying that Jesus who was crucified would destroy the temple and alter the customs of Moses those were the charges laid against uh, Stephen he's brought before the Sanhedrin to answer for those charges and so after hearing them we ended last week with the people on the Sanhedrin turning towards Stephen and they said, it says they saw his face like the face of an angel. And that's where we left off. We're kind of left hanging last week. Today as we pick up the story in chapter 7, we'll, we'll hear, as Paul Harvey would say, we'll hear the rest of the story. You notice in chapter 7 verse 1, it tells us that the high priest turned to Stephen and asked for a, his response to these charges. Little did they know the earful that they were about to get. <laughs> Stephen's response comes in the form of a history lesson, which at the end turns into a sermon. It's the longest sermon by anybody that's recorded for us in the New Testament. And I didn't have uh, Chris read the whole chapter uh, because of its length. But verses 2 through 50 is a history lesson. 
Stephen goes through the history of the Jewish people all the way from the time when God called Abraham till when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. So that's a period that covers approximately 1,100 years. Now the Jewish leaders who made up the Sanhedrin, they knew their history. They knew everything that Stephen reiterated there in those 50 verses. None of this was anything new for them. But Stephen had a point that he was building to. So, let's quickly look at a couple of things that Stephen highlights in this rendition, or his rendition of, of Israel's history. And then we'll carry on to some application at the end. But let's look at what Peter highlights here. First of all, verses 2 through 10 of Acts 7. Talking about Abraham and how God called Abraham when he was still living in the land of the Chaldeans and so on. And brought him to the land of Canaan. So Abraham came to Canaan, the land which they were now in, as Stephen is speaking here to the Sanhedrin. Uh, God brought him to Canaan. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, whom Stephen here calls the patriarchs. Look at verse 9 and 10. 11 of those patriarchs became jealous of their, of the 12th one, their brother Joseph, and mistreated him and sold him into Egypt. But it says God rescued him from all these afflictions, and God gave him favor with the king of Egypt, and Joseph became the governor over all of Egypt. And as you read in verse 11 and following, Joseph rescued all his family from the famine that was there. And Joseph was chosen and Joseph was used by God to save his family, fathers, brothers, brothers, family, etc. So even though those brothers mistreated Joseph, Joseph was used by God to save those brothers from the famine. Second, let's look at verse 23 to 43. And the focus on that passage is Moses. Stephen recounts how Moses was called by God to deliver the Jews from Egypt and that he did that. That's a pretty rich passage. I wish I could preach three or four sermons on that one, on those verses, but I can't. I'm just going to cover it all. There's a lot here I'm going to leave out. Uh, but Moses was called by God to deliver the Jews from Egypt, and, and that's what he did. And although at this point, when Stephen was talking to the Sanhedrin, at that point, all the Jews looked back and they revered Moses. At the time... Back when God was calling Moses to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, there was a lot of resistance from his fellow Jews directed at Moses. It started with Moses trying to stop a fight between two other Israelites. And then it went on even after they went out of Egypt and were in the wilderness. During their time in the wilderness, it went on the whole time. God's people, the Jewish people, resisted Moses and his leadership. And even though Moses, with numerous miracles from God, led them to freedom, and who went up on top of the mountain, the Mount Sinai, and received the law from God himself, which all the Jews had come to revere, that law, there were those who fought Moses all along the way. They made a golden calf to worship. While Moses was up on the mountain getting the law from God himself, at the bottom of the mountain, they were making a golden calf. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to worship the god of the golden calf and let that god of the golden calf bring them back to Egypt. 
And as I said, in those whole 40 years they were in the wilderness, verses 42 to 43, they were worshiping idols on the side. And their sacrifices were not to God. And Stephen closes that history portion of his sermon with David, who wanted to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. But God said it would be Solomon who would do that. But, truth be told, Stephen says, it isn't like God needs a temple made with human hands to live in. And verses 49 to 50 of chapter 7, um, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 66 to show that truth. God doesn't need a temple built with human hands to live in. And then Stephen closes his sermon with a scathing indictment of these Jewish leaders and their sin, which is the same sin committed by the Jewish people over and over and over again all throughout their history, verses 51 to 53. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Which of the prophets that God sent to bring his word to us all through our history did our fathers not persecute? And that was the point of... Stephen's history lesson. It started with Joseph and it went on to Moses and even those prophets that God sent to announce the coming of the Messiah. Verse 52. Even those prophets, their fathers killed. And now Stephen is saying, you people sitting here on the Sanhedrin, just a matter of maybe a couple of months ago, betrayed and murdered the very Messiah who Jesus was, that God promised all along to send you, and you killed him. You are continuing on in the same sin of persecuting and killing the people God sent to bring his word to you. And that was the point of Stephen's sermon. <laughs> A very scathing indictment of these people on the Sanhedrin and their sin. Well, as you can imagine, the members of the Sanhedrin did not take kindly <laughs> to this ripping that Stephen gave them. And as a result, they rushed Stephen, drove him out of the city, and they stoned him to death. And Stephen became the first Christian martyr. Well, what's the lesson for us here today from this? What's this passage saying to us here today? And I'd like to bring out some lessons that come to light, or came to light to me as I, uh, as I prepared this. We as Christians today can learn from the story of the martyrdom of Stephen. And we can do that by looking at the lessons that come out of this, this story here in Acts chapter 7. So three lessons that I'd like to point out from this passage. Number one, we need to understand that belief in God and belief in Jesus as the Messiah is inseparable. You need to understand that belief in God and belief in Jesus as the Messiah is inseparable. And I'd like to focus here on this history lesson that Stephen presented to the Sanhedrin in verses 2 through 50. You know, if you just grab your Bible and open it and read that passage at first reading, you may not catch much of a connection between the charges brought against Stephen and this recount of Israel's history, which Stephen gave as a defense against those charges. He was charged with blasphemy against God and against Moses of, of uh, saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and all the customs. That was the charges. And he gives them a history lesson. 
At first, really, you may not see the connection there. But as you read it again and think about it, you come to see that this was an incredibly skillful defense on Stephen's part. He was charged with blasphemy against Moses and God for speaking against the temple and the law, as I said, working to alter the customs Moses handed down to them. And Stephen, in his defense, is saying, in effect, that's the charges? Okay, let's take a look at what Moses did and said in the story of the temple. Let's take a look at that. <laughs> let's take a look at what our history shows. And we'll see who's guilty of blasphemy against God. And so Stephen recounts it all. All historical events that were there, which everyone on the Sanhedrin would have agreed with. But Stephen puts the spotlight on some things that the members of the Sanhedrin would likely not have focused on. There's a thread running through the history of God dealing with his people that runs through the entire history of the Israelites. God is constantly reaching out to the people, calling people to be messengers for him. He has a plan that is unfolding through the ages which will culminate in the coming of the Messiah. And God always sends his messengers to bring his word to his people and to bring them to himself and enter into his plan and his purposes for the ages. That's what the history of the Jewish people shows. But along with that, what does the history show? It shows that the Jewish people all along have resisted God's word and have resisted the messengers God sent to them. It started with Joseph being rejected by his brothers, even though God had chosen Joseph to be the one to deliver them from the famine and to bring them to Egypt where they could become a nation. They resisted Joseph. They persecuted Joseph. It went on to Moses, whom God called to bring them out of Egypt and back to the promised land. Moses, who was chosen by God to lead them out of slavery and to give them the very words of God in the law that God gave to Moses on the mountain. And the people resisted Moses all along the way. And more than once they rejected Moses as leader and wanted to choose another leader to bring them back to Egypt. And even while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the word of God in the form of the law, what were the people at the bottom of the mountain doing? They were making a golden calf and worshiping it, organizing to go back to Egypt. So they resisted and persecuted Moses. As far as the temple is concerned, God had given them a tent, the tent of the tabernacle. In the wilderness, before they even got to the promised land, God had given them instructions to make that tent called the tabernacle, where he would meet with them, where it's presence would be there in the middle of his people where they could come and meet to him the temple in Jerusalem was David's idea that's something David wanted to do for God he felt bad because he had a gorgeous temple he was living in and God just had a tent so David felt bad about that and he decided he wanted to build a temple for God and his, David's motive was good and right and all that but this was not something that God directed and asked for in fact, God told David he shouldn't do it. His son Solomon would be the one to do it. But as you read the story in the Old Testament, you definitely get the idea. This was more of a concession on God's part that the temple be built. And it actually was a command from God that he wanted the beautiful temple built. And so 
so Stephen says, quoting from Acts, pardon me, from Isaiah 66, and I'm looking at verses 49 to 50 here in Acts chapter 7. That's a quotation from Isaiah 66. God doesn't need a temple made with human hands. What are you going to build for God that he needs to live in? And we know that this temple that Solomon built, beautiful, beautiful temple, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. A scaled down temple was then rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah when they came back from Babylon. I'm not quite sure of my history here, I didn't research it, but, but Herod then greatly expanded and beautified the temple to pacify the Jews. And that was the temple that was there at this time, when Jesus' time, and when the apostles were, were speaking here. It was, it was a beautiful temple. That was under Herod's leadership that that temple was expanded and beautified. Now, I think when they were speaking here, that, those renovations were still ongoing. But this temple, Herod's temple, that they were in right now when they appeared before the Sanhedrin, that would be totally destroyed in less than 40 years after Stephen spoke these words. When the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. Stephen's point is that the physical temple in Jerusalem is just a man-made building. God doesn't need man-made buildings to live in. There's nothing really that sacred about a physical building. And of course, all of God's plans and purposes for the Jewish people culminated with the coming of the Messiah. Messiah was a climax of all of God's work, all of God's plan through the ages. They were all looking forward to the Messiah. They were all longing for it. And yet all along, Stephen says in verse 52, those prophets that God sent to tell us about the coming Messiah, they were persecuted and killed by the very people that they were bringing the good news to. And then Jesus the Messiah did come. And note what Stephen is saying there in verse 52. That's the implication of Stephen's words. Verse 52. The righteous one. That's Jesus. He is the Messiah the Jews were longing for. And the prophets foretold was coming. Finally, he came. It was Jesus. And they, the very one sitting on the Sanhedrin and holding Stephen to trial, had killed the Messiah God sent to them when they crucified Jesus. And Stephen closes his defense there in verse 53. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. Stephen is saying, in effect, you received the law God gave Moses, and you revered it as, it, you, you revere it as ordained by angels, but just like our forefathers, you don't obey it. You reject the message of it. You killed the very Messiah God had promised all along, whom we're all waiting, we were all waiting for. <laughs> and you can almost hear Stephen's unspoken words. And you accuse me of blasphemy? <laughs> you can almost hear that coming out of Stephen's mouth. The main thing I want us to see from this is that Stephen is saying that Jesus is the Messiah God promised all along. So if you're going to say that you believe in God, then that means you must believe in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the culmination, the climax of all God's dealings with the Jewish people and in fact all of mankind all through history. Jesus is God's answer to the sin problem of mankind. Jesus is the way of salvation, the only way. From the penalty of our sin, which is eternal death in hell. Jesus is the only way of salvation from that. And as the New Testament makes clear, Jesus is in fact God. God the Son. You cannot separate God from Jesus. So if you say you believe in God, that means you must also believe in Jesus as the Messiah. The Jews couldn't accept that. They didn't like Jesus being the Messiah. He was different and opposite to what they were expecting. But as Stephen shows, you can't separate them. Belief in one compels a belief in the other. So to not believe in Jesus as the Messiah is to reject the very God that they say they believed in. So we need to understand that. Same is true for all of humanity today. Most people in our world would likely say they believe in God. The majority probably would say that. They believe in God. They believe in some kind of higher being. They believe in some kind of deity. But so many people struggle with believing Jesus is the one and only way. The only Savior. They try to make a separation there. That's a separation we cannot make. <laughs> Still remember, it's many years ago now, but happened to turn on the TV and it was the Oprah show, the Oprah Winfrey show. She had a guest on there. I don't even remember what the topic of discussion was, but it was about God and things and dealing with different religions and I don't know what all. But anyway, this guest said, I have no problem believing in God. But why the insistence that it has to be Jesus? <laughs> that was her words. Why does it have to be Jesus? No problem believing God, but why does it have to be Jesus? And that, I think, is illustrative of how a lot of people think. You can't separate the two. Do you believe in God? Then that means you have to believe Jesus is the Messiah. The Savior who has come to die and rise again and accomplish salvation for us. And to receive that salvation, you have to make the choice to place your faith in Jesus, to repent of your sin, and accept Jesus as your Savior. If you really believe in God, then you must believe in Jesus as the Savior. And if you really believe, you'll put, your, put some action to your belief. That's called faith. That's what faith is. That's what Chris has been drilling into our junior youth on Friday nights. That's what faith is when you put your belief into action. And live out what you say you believe. And accept Jesus as your Savior. This is something we must understand. And I trust all of you have done that. You can't separate belief in God from belief in Jesus as the Messiah. Secondly, second lesson I see here. We need to realize that Jesus is very much alive and active today. Looking here at verses 54 through 56. Jesus is very much alive and active today. So, as you know from Chris reading this passage a bit earlier, Jewish leaders, they were enraged by what Stephen said. They're enraged by what Stephen accused them of. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But Stephen, it says, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And God granted him the ability to see into heaven. 
Kind of like God pulled back the curtains for him and allowed him to look right into heaven. And Stephen says he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at God's right hand. And so Stephen proceeded to tell the people of the Sanhedrin what he saw. He says, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man there, an obvious reference to Jesus. That's what Jesus called himself throughout much of the Gospel of Luke, the Son of Man. Sanhedrin understood who Stephen was referring to. I saw, I see the heavens open and the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We'll stop there for a bit. Jewish leaders, they thought they had gotten rid of Jesus when they crucified him. And that his followers would scatter and come to nothing. But three days later, the tomb was empty. Jesus rose from the dead, or so the disciples claimed. Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, they didn't believe it. But they couldn't explain it. The tomb was empty. And the result was that the disciples went on with more energy and power than ever. And now Stephen gets a peek into heaven and sees Jesus, the risen, ascended Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Now, Stephen wasn't one of Jesus' chosen twelve disciples. Stephen likely never got to see the risen Jesus before he ascended into heaven. But here he gets a glimpse into heaven and he sees the risen Jesus standing at God's right hand. Just confirmation to Stephen of the resurrection of Jesus and of Jesus being glorified. Friends, Jesus is very much alive and active today. He's not physically present with us like he was during his three years of life on this earth. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And he is there, very much alive and active. Jesus told his disciples just before his crucifixion that he was leaving. And he told them, it's better that I do leave because he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And he would continue his work in them and through them by the Holy Spirit. And we're seeing that happening as we go through the book of Acts. We're seeing that. God continuing his work. Jesus continuing his work on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything we see happening in Acts... And even today, as far as the gospel is concerned, is Jesus working through the Holy Spirit in and through his disciples. So friends, Jesus isn't just a good story from the Bible. He is literally alive today. He's literally active today, working through the Holy Spirit in you and I, through you and I, as his disciples. We need to realize that. We need to understand that. We need to keep on doing the work Jesus has called us to do, to do, knowing that he is actively working in us and through us as we do so. By the Holy Spirit whom he has sent to indwell us and to control us as we allow him to. Jesus is very active in our world today. One more interesting thing I see here. This might be a bit of a beside the point, but I find it so interesting. Those of you who have heard me do so, some funerals, I mentioned this in a couple of funerals I've done, but it says here, Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Standing. 
Everywhere else in the New Testament, Jesus has spoken of as being seated at the right hand of God. Many times. I looked it up. I forget exactly how many. But a lot of times. And it's always seated. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And there he makes intercession for us. Interceding for us before God the Father. Always seated at the right hand of God. Except here. Here Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. That to me speaks of activity. Jesus isn't just seated, watching things unfold, interceding for us. He also, he, he definitely does that, he also stands and takes part, he directs. That's kind of the implication I get from that word standing. Uh, and could it be, could it be as Stephen is about to be killed, that Jesus is standing up to welcome his saint Stephen home to heaven? Standing out to reach out to Stephen as he comes through the gates, say, well done, my good and faithful servant. point is we need to realize that Jesus is very much alive and active today. Thirdly, finally, we need to view our persecutors with an attitude of forgiveness. We need to view our persecutors with an attitude of forgiveness. That revelation that God gave Stephen, that peek into heaven, and seeing the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and Stephen telling them what he was seeing, as we said, that was too much for the Jewish leaders and those who were there at the trial. Verse 57 to 60, they cried out with a loud voice. They rushed him. They drove him out of the city. They began stoning him. They laid their garments for keeping at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, that sets us up, by the way, for chapters 8 and 9. <laughs> and this uh, young man named Saul. Anyway, they got Stephen out there. Took off their jackets, laid them at Saul's feet, and they stoned Stephen to death. Stephen's last words before he died there, verse 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. Does it remind you of something? Wasn't that what Jesus said? Was he was hanging on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen here is following Jesus' example. He's praying for God to forgive those who are throwing the stones. What an example. Even though Stephen had just preached a scathing sermon to these people in the form of his defense, pointing out their sin of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and in fact killing him, it's obvious from this that Stephen did not bear any hard feelings or grudges against them. He just desperately wanted for them to understand the truth and accept Jesus as their Messiah. And in the end, when they decided to kill the messenger, he prayed for their forgiveness. And friends, that's a great example for us. As I've said for a few sermons now, we will likely be coming up against more and more persecution as time goes on. They will make things very difficult for us. They will hurt us. 
And who knows what all they're going to do to us. We haven't experienced any yet, but we can feel it coming. And as this goes on, we need to follow this example. Don't bear grudges against our persecutors. Don't seek to get revenge against them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand the truth. Have an attitude of forgiveness toward them. Long for them to understand the truth. Long and pray for them to come to see Jesus as their Messiah and the only source of salvation for them and that they would turn to Jesus. Have an attitude of forgiveness toward our persecutors. So therefore we see from this passage the lessons from the martyrdom of Stephen that we need to learn. And we need to live by number one, understand that belief in God and belief in Jesus as a Messiah, it's inseparable. You can't separate those two. Number two, realize that Jesus is very much alive and active today. And then view our persecutors with an attitude of forgiveness. As we bring this to a close, uh, we need to make this personal. It really does no good if we don't make it personal. Do we understand how inseparable God and Jesus are? That Jesus is the only way of salvation from the penalty of our sin? Do we understand that? And have you placed your faith in him for that salvation? And if you're here this morning and never have done that, that's the first order of business that needs to be done. I encourage you to do that before we leave this building this morning. Secondly, do, do we live with a realization of the work of Jesus who is very much alive and active in our world and in our lives today? Everything may look chaotic. We look around us and everything seems to be chaotic. There's no control. There's no whatever. Well, yes, there is. <laughs> Jesus is very much alive and active. Nothing is going on that is a surprise to God or a surprise to Jesus. Nothing is going on that's making Jesus have to go to a plan B, for example. Everything's in his control. We don't see it. We feel like we're out of control. That scares us. And rightly so. We're humans. We feel insecure. That fills our hearts with fear. But Jesus is very much alive and active in our world today. So if you're facing any kind of persecution, anybody's persecuting you, are you viewing them with an attitude of forgiveness? Are you viewing them with a prayer for their salvation? That's something that has struck me more than once. I'm a slow learner a lot of times. And uh, God has to hit me over the head a few times before I get it. We're so concerned about our own country the direction has taken and the leadership of our own country. And rightly so we should be concerned. Do we pray for our leaders? Do we pray that our Prime Minister will accept Jesus as Savior? Or are the government leaders that seem to be taking us down a road that is not right? Do we pray that they would understand the truth? Pray for those who may be persecuting us. These are the things we need to wrestle with. 
as we come to terms with this passage from the Word of God today. So let's take our time of silence and just spend a few moments, just you alone with your God, opening your heart to God and letting God speak to you about what he may need to speak to you about personally in your own heart and in your own life. I'll give you a few moments. Amen. Music team, please.
we sing this final song, <clears throat> Sarah sent me a clip uh, this morning, so I changed up our order of service. But it is a clip of that was made on Wednesday night. It's Ukrainian believers at their prayer meeting, our brothers and sisters in Christ, while they're waiting for the aggressors to come across their border. So these people have a really, really serious upscale in their persecution and their freedom to worship in the way they want to worship Jesus Christ is um, going to be curtailed. And this is what they're singing. They're singing, He Will Hold Me Fast. So this is a clip of them, and then we will sing the song afterwards. Justice has been satisfied. 